This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they are keeping this show going. So I have to thank the patrons who have signed up over the past 30 days, and they are Nada da Unda da None. Ooh, let me try that again. Nada <laughs> da Unda Nada da. I, I practiced this beforehand, and I got it. <laughs> now I can't. Nada da Unda. Hold on. Nada da Unda. We'll just go with Nada. Thank you, Nada. (laughs) Nada, Elaine, Bullsteer, Sphinx, Graham, Carrie, Chad, Adamic, Griffin, Q, and Lucas. Thank you so much. You are keeping me from having to do horrible and disgusting things like selling my own internal organs out of a beer cooler on the side of the street because this bitch needs money. And so do you want me to do terrible things like that? No, you do not. In which case, it is in your best interest and mine to sign up as a patron. Now, I have an important announcement, which is I am no longer just on Patreon. I have expanded my work to the marvelous platform Substack. So Patreon is primarily for visual artists and Uh, people who make videos and games and so on and so forth. But it isn't really great for writers. So the options on Patreon really haven't been awesome for me as a writer, but Substack is designed specifically for writers and podcasters. So it's like this magical wonderland, and it has incredibly talented writers there. I am incredibly excited to be part of that platform. It is also a free speech platform. It is a platform that values free speech and freedom of expression, which means that weirdos like me have a place. We have a voice there. I strongly encourage everyone to check out Substack. I love the platform. I love the user experience. And all of my work is consolidated onto the sacredtension.substack.com site. So that is my blog, my paid content, and my public Sacred Tension podcast. All of it is there under one name, Sacred Tension. And I have also started a new paid subscriber series called Curiosities. It is a curated list of interesting things that I have discovered from around the web that week. So the most recent one that I did was what do John Stuart Mill and the rapper Killer Mike have in common? So stuff like that, articles that I find that don't yet warrant an entire blog post or don't yet warrant uh, an entire podcast. I collect them all together and I hope you enjoy that. Here's the important thing. Nothing changes for my patrons on Patreon. So Patreon will continue to go as normal. If you have used Patreon for the past however long and it's what you're comfortable with and you have all your creators on there that you support, nothing is changing for you. Substack is an add-on. It is an addition. If you are interested in joining Substack, please do consider doing that. There will be a link in the show notes. 
Also, if you want to throw away all self-respect and dignity, you can become a shameless missionary for Sacred Tension. And if you refer friends to the Sacred Tension Substack and they sign up, you get uh, a free paid subscription. So I think for three new subscribers, you get three months, no, one month, and then it just goes up from there. So if you can't afford a paid subscription, then become a shameless evangelist for the sacred tension mind virus, and you will be rewarded. I, your benevolent brood mother, will reward you. All right. I think that is all for housekeeping. So I'm delighted to welcome my sister, Elizabeth Schultz, back. She is here to torment me with questions. So last time I asked her questions and now the tables have turned and it is her opportunity to interview me. So just some background first. I am a progressive. I am progressive politically. And I am not a Christian. I am, in fact, a minister of Satan in the Satanic Temple. And I am non-theistic. And my sister is a conservative Christian. One of the big themes on this show is how to talk across divides and how to actually live out the namesake of this podcast, which is Sacred Tension, how to exist in liminal spaces with other people. So, my sister is here. She is a very good sport to uh, try to practice some of this. So, hello, Elizabeth <laughs> Schultz. Welcome back. Hello, Stephen Long. Yes, I take it as my duty as your older sister to ask you tormenting questions. Very so, good. here I am. <laughs> here we are. Perfect. So, here, here we are. I, I explicitly asked you not to tell me what questions you have for me. So, I am going into this completely blind. So... If yes. I give horrible answers, I just beg my audience to be gracious. And um, also, everyone should go back and listen to our previous episode together. It's called Sibling Rivalry. And it was, I think, an incredibly productive conversation. I got a wide range of responses to it. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. Um, but that's great. So we will have another round. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I would consider it an insult to myself if I didn't make people mad at some level. So uh, that means I'm just doing my job asking good questions, right? Um, okay, two. <laughs> so to start things out, I thought I'd uh, throw you some softball questions. How's that? How's that? Just to, yes, to that sounds war great. warm up things here a little bit. So what is your favorite book? Oh, goodness. That's easy. Um, I would say prop. Hmm. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde yep. is enormously influential for me. The Man Who Is Thursday by G.K. Chesterton yep. is hugely influential. I, there, there are certainly more. Whenever, whenever people ask me what my favorite book is, my, my, I, I kind, I freeze. I kind of, <laughs> I, um, so we'll just go with that. We'll go with picture of Dorian Gray and the man who is Thursday. Next question, softball question, warming things up. Yes. Uh, what was your most embarrassing moment in your life? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Cause why not? You know, you know, we're, we're getting ready to get into some pretty deep philosophical mm -hmm. questions. So why not get the uh, embarrassing stuff out of the way? Right. Um, so I won't, I'm, this isn't the most embarrassing moment of my life, but it was maybe the most embarrassing moment of last year where, okay. so I was running 
I was going for a run in a local park and listen there is this field full of hot mexican dudes playing soccer and while this is happening i just unexpectedly shit myself so hard while (laughs) while running and it just happened suddenly you know it happens i'm a long distance runner this happens to runners anyone who is a long distance runner has had this experience and so i just it was explosive it was fireworks and then i'm like waddling across the park and this there's this field full of hot latino guys playing soccer and i'm just like don't look at me don't look at me don't look at me as i'm like crab walking to the bathroom so that was that was pretty bad yeah yeah you know i i think you just gave me my most embarrassing moment of the year just by listening to you right now listen this is among (laughs) thousands of our best friends listening yes yes okay well i'm embarrassed for you my dear brother we may we may or may not edit that out we'll see but you asked (laughs) i know i did ask oh man okay now for the good stuff right let's let's jump in and first (laughs) not that your embarrassing moment was you know the highlight of the podcast But I just want to once again, thank you for giving me this opportunity. I had a lot of fun the last time around and it was uh, very stimulating for me. I learned a lot. Uh, It challenged me a lot. And I thought, oh, this the second time around, um, I I expect the same results personally for myself. Uh, I actually sat down after our first podcast and had to write out uh, some epiphanies that I had and some questions that I had and some things that I was really wrestling with as a result of that first podcast. So I expect to do the same thing again. So thank you for that opportunity uh, to continue honing, as you said, the discipline of asking questions. I love that because that is a discipline, right? We have to learn how to ask questions and not just any questions, but good questions. Uh, there are bad questions, actually. There, There's those softball questions, right? There are those questions that barely touch the surface and never get below the surface. So I think what what you're doing here in this podcast is very valuable because it's training people and teaching people how to ask those questions that get below the surface, right? Okay, so let me kind of set up uh, the context here for the questions that I'll be asking you, right? I would like, uh, in the spirit of the discipline of asking questions, I would like to do a comparing and contrasting of the fundamental questions of our opposing worldviews. How does that sound? Does that, that sound sounds, like a good challenge? That sounds perfect. Let's do it. Okay. And, and the purpose of this, of course, is to better understand each other and to model that idea of when you're having conversations with someone who has a fundamentally different worldview. I believe that a good way to go about having these conversations is to compare and contrast, to ask those deep questions in order to find the possibility of common ground on which to to build a relationship, right? Absolutely, okay. yes. So I'm sure you're you're familiar with the three most basic worldview questions, right? Um, the worldview questions. I might are, not be. Tell tell me. I will. Well, let's first define what a worldview is. Okay, right. So a worldview is the lens through which we see reality. Okay, that's a very simple definition, right? And all worldviews ask three fundamental questions. Okay. They ask the question of who or what is God, who or what is man, and what is, what is the nature of reality? Those are the three fundamental questions of a worldview. Okay. But I, I, I want to take these questions a little deeper, right? 
those questions of a worldview give us our orthodoxy, our, our kind of our framework of what we believe. But I want to talk about a life system. That's a bigger thing. Life system in, includes a worldview, uh, but it also includes the actions that we take because of our worldview. Does that make sense? Yes. And a, okay. And a life system asks a different set of questions along the same vein, right? Uh, they ask, or it asks, what is our relationship to God? What is our relationship to other man or mankind, men and women? And what is our relationship to reality or the world? Okay, it's relational because human beings are relational, right? Everything we do is in the context of relation. And so worldview just asks those intellectual questions, but how we live it out is distinctly and profoundly relational, right? So now that's a huge topic. We'll probably only just cover one <laughs> in the time Great. that we have. Um, and, and we'll see what wonderful rabbit holes we, we wander down. Okay, is, is that clear uh, kind of the big context that I've yes, laid out? absolutely. All right. Are you game? Is this, game. Does this sound good? Yes, I consent. Okay, good. You're ready. Awesome. Well, let's let's tackle that first uh, worldview question and life system question, right? Of in through through your eyes, in your position, who's God? What is God? And then tag on that part two question of what is your relationship to Him, to it, whatever your definition is, right? And then I will share my answers, and we will compare and contrast. Yeah, perfect. So there are some understandings of God that I am more allergic to than others. And <laughs> there and there are some concepts of God, some definitions of God that I'm actually more amenable towards, that that I'm I actually am a bit warmer towards. And of course the first question that needs to be answered is what do we mean by God? Because I think that even a single person will have a kind of broad range of what is God and sometimes contradictory or complementary understandings of, of God that are all coexisting together. So there is not one God there are, in, in a conceptual sense. There are many, 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 many gods. And so the question is, well, what kind of God? So I am not necessarily opposed to a philosophical, classical theism God. God as first mover. God as the ground of being, in the words of Paul Tillich. A, a God that is fundamentally philosophical, that provides the foundation upon which reality exists and moves and has its being. Now, I am perfectly happy to say that everything that we experience— that there is something fundamentally mysterious about it, that this universe is inexplicable and is base and, and might be founded on something or might be established on a substrate that is unknown to us. And if we want to call that thing God, that's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, I personally don't. Because I do think that it can be semantically confusing sometimes to call that thing God. Um, but if we, if by God we mean that feeling of incredible awe that we have when we contemplate the laws of physics, when we think about the nature of consciousness, when we do all of that stuff, right? I'm okay with that. I, I love that shit. When it, 
starts to trickle down. So when 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 we start to discuss any other type of God, a God that has a personality, a God that has a will, a God that engages in the world, a God that communicates with us, um, anything that is beyond that numinous sense or philosophical first cause sense or whatever, whatever. The, and I know that I'm, you know, the, the philosophers in my audience are yelling at me right now because I'm conflating a lot of things. That's fine. They can yell. But anything beyond that, I, I can't accept. And there are a number of reasons why. But I think when people say the word God, they mean God in that sense very often. They mean a God that, is, that has volition, that has will, that has, for lack of a better term, a personality, um, a God that is knowable, a God that is a person and interacts with our physical world in Basically miraculous the, ways. Basically the, the Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh. The, the Judeo-Christian God or even, you know, pagan gods. You know, I, I reject those too, right? Gods that— Thor. Thor. Um, <laughs> Shiva. I mean, gods that—and or supernatural agents in general. You know, supernatural agents that interact with the world. I do not accept those. So— when it so how do I relate to that God? Is that the second question? Um, yes, but can, can I ask some clarifying questions yes, please. On, on the first section? And that is so supernatural agents, as in angels, demons, blah blah blah. Angels, demons, gods, ghosts, okay. spirits. Okay. Yes. So the the entirety of the spiritual realm is not a part of your worldview. In other words, it does not exist. Um it is not that it doesn't exist, and there's actually there—this is an important clarification. So I think that the term atheist is an umbrella term, So, it, and it's actually a spectrum. So atheism, meaning no God, simply no God, it's, a, it's an umbrella term. It's a spectrum. So on one far end, you have anti-theist, and anti-theism is, I think, what most people assume atheism means. Anti-theism is the effect. Affirmative belief that God does not exist. It is an affirmative belief that God does not exist, and along with that, very often, spirits don't exist, angels, demons, the supernatural, energies, so on and so forth, also do not exist. Now, those two, th those are not synonymous, by the way. There are atheists who believe in magic, for example, um, like Anton LaVey, founder of the original Church of Satan. He was an atheist, but he believed in magic with the CK. So huh. it doesn't—so being an atheist does not necessarily exclude the existence of the supernatural, but often it does, especially if you are, in my personal experience, if someone is an anti-theist, right? But then on the other end is what I would call agnostic atheist, and that's a softer form of atheism in my view, and that's what right. I am. And that my position is kind of a softer atheism, which is I don't know if God exists, and I don't know if the supernatural exists, but I am withholding belief until I feel that I have sufficient evidence. So 
One is an affirmative value. I believe that God does not exist, and I believe that the supernatural does not exist. Whereas the problem I have with that is that I think that that requires a whole set of evidence that is not met. But what one can do is withhold belief and be open. And so I see this as genuine skepticism, a genuine open-handedness to reality. Of I appreciate the fact that reality is wild and weird and unexpected and wondrous, um, but each chain in in what we believe in that in the causal chain, we each one each chain has to be established as true. So I can't just add on a link of God is real or the supernatural is real until I feel like I have good evidence for that. Um, I'm open to that. And I, I actually feel like I'm quite open to a lot of things. I'm open to the possibility that we are living in a simulation. I'm open to the possibility that we are being visited by aliens. I'm open to the possibility of new age energies. I, I feel like I'm, I'm open to a lot of stuff. And to quote the X-Files, I want to believe. <laughs> I just need I just yeah. need a certain measure of evidence first. And I what, use what kind of evidence? So I don't know. The okay. I don't know what ev- so in the case of God, in the case of the supernatural, I don't know what kind of evidence would convince me because the supernatural means above nature. Well, what's above nature? There there's only the na- there's only if if something exists then it is na- then it is part of the natural world. Um that's what natural means. I mean, so if super if something is supernatural, I don't even know what that would mean because if something exists, then it is part of the natural world. And that does not mean it is material. That doesn't mean that it follows the laws of physics, I guess, but it would mean that it is in the world, it is of the world, and therefore it is natural. Um, and so there, therefore, are you saying that it can be measured with the scientific method? If it's of the world, then in some level, it's science can grasp it and understand it. Um, something would have to grasp it and understand it. And science may be, I mean, here's the thing. The moment something interacts with the world in the way people claim that the supernatural does, suddenly that, suddenly those are claims about the physical world. So let's take a ghost. If if we say a ghost is turning the lights on and off at night, or if we say a ghost is walking down the stairwell, stairwell at night and it's creaking down, those are actual physical phenomena. And so suddenly the supernatural is suddenly very natural. It is suddenly interacting with the world, and that is the province of the scientific method, right? And the same is true of God. (laughs) So if God interacts with this physical world, which people claim he does, then that is the province of the sciences. So, and and here's the thing, if he doesn't, then that is a meaningless God. I mean, if something does not interact with our world, if something does not have um, a tangible engagement with our world, that's an imaginary friend. 
So that that's something that is unfalsifiable. That's something that does not have any meaningful impact on our world. So in order for God to exist, he must engage with the world in some way. And if he engages with the world, then that is the province of the sciences. Now, it's really, really hard to come up with a codified theory of how science attains truth in every situation. So Karl Popper tried to say, oh, it's falsifiability. There are big limits to that. There, so different, different philosophers of science have tried to establish a basic code of conduct and theory of everything for how science attains truth or approaches truth. It, that's really, really hard to do. But I think the basic premise of, of science and the scientific method is that there is a fact of the matter in the physical world, in the same way in a murder case, there is a fact of the matter in that murder case. Someone committed the murder, and even if the process of determining who committed the murder is messy, and there's lots of intuition, and there's lots of different types of tests, and it's all imperfect, at the end of the day, there is a fact of the matter Someone did commit the murder, a specific person or persons, and either the method helps us approach that fact or helps us move further away from it, right? So it's the same with God. There, it, it's a, I don't know how science would measure that. I have no clue, but... If God is a meaningful entity, you know, if God is real, if, if, um, or let me put it this way, if an entity does not interact with the physical world, then that is a meaningless God. <laughs> what if he does? What if he does interact with the world? What would that look like in, in your mind? I have no idea. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. And, and so, you know, this is where Carl Sagan's extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, and what that means is it evidence for something that is outside of our typical understanding of reality needs to have a large body of evidence in its favor that is extraordinary to counteract the weight of my pre-existing worldview is basically what that means. So I have a worldview that the laws of physics can't be broken. And I don't think that the laws of physics can be broken for the same reason I don't think mathematics can be broken. Two plus two can never equal anything other than four. And so in my mind, God existing or, or God, you know, a supernatural entity breaking the laws of physics would be akin to suddenly two plus two equaling five. So what, what if um, he's not breaking he being God? Uh, isn't necessarily breaking the laws of physics, but because he is creator, is able to bend the laws of physics. So that that's something to think. Oh, let, let, let me back up here real quick. Have you heard of the creator-created distinction? No. Okay. It's a theological understanding of how God interacts with the world. And when I'm saying God, I mean Yahweh, Elohim, the God, sure. the creator God, the one who spoke life into existence. 
uh, the one who knows us deeply and who is very concerned about our well-being and what's going on in our world. And so the creator-creature distinction states that God, as creator, created this reality, you and I, right, is able to interact with this reality via science and the laws of physics, et cetera, uh, is a, and because he is creator, knows things about the nature of reality that are way beyond our understanding and is able to do things that we can't understand because it's beyond our understanding. However, even though he can be in our created reality or the reality, he is separate and distinct from it. So that's what separates the Judeo-Christian belief from pantheism, for example. Pantheism says that, oh, God is in, is, is nature, okay, and it's the worship of nature. That is very, very different uh, from the Judeo-Christian belief that God, yes, he is part of nature. He, he is present, but he is not in nature. He is separate. He is a separate entity, a separate being, distinction, personality, right? Um, okay, so just wanted to clarify that as a contrast to our two uh, understandings of God. Um, I'm, I'm just curious. I, I want to keep coming back to this idea or this question of what kind of evidence do you require? Mm. I gen- because so huh? well so no go on go on finish finish your thought there. Well, I I look around and the evidence is plain. It's like standing right in front of me, it, and it's like. Okay, maybe I'm just an idiot. <laughs> no, I don't think you are. So you aren't an idiot. And 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 actually, that's an important thing for me to clarify. Theists aren't idiots. And people who believe in the supernatural are not idiots. In fact, some of my best friends are theists. Um, but more to the point, some of the kindest, wisest, smartest people I know are theists. So this isn't a matter of intelligence or character or anything like that, right? And I feel like that's really important to clarify because very often in conversations about the existence of God, people's individual intelligence and integrity and character get thrown in there in ways that I think are very unproductive. So we can happily put all of that to the side. It's a matter of seeing, I believe. It's like because the, the evidence scripture says that that uh, the, the basically to paraphrase phrase is that the evidence of God's existence is is in creation. Right. That we can look around at the majesty of this created order and just marvel and be and say, this didn't come out of nothing. This is so intricate. This is so beautiful. This couldn't have just happened that this reflects the the image of a god who is creative who is beautiful who is loving who is powerful who is amazing and he and this world the good parts of it is are is a reflection of his goodness mm. i can go with about 50% of that where okay i i think that it's very possible that the impulse towards theism is rooted in the absolute mystery of existence and mm-hmm this cosmos where i stop is there that that's that's all i have is the fundamental mystery and awe and wonder at reality and i because you know the i forget which uh, i think it's romans 1 that says that you know 
the glory of God is evident in his creation. All the, all the argument that one needs for the existence of God is in the creation. But the problem I have with that is that that presupposes the existence of God, right? And so we're, we're actually just entering into our experience of the universe, presupposing the, the existence of God, and then the mystery of God, or the, then the mystery of creation is answered by that presupposition. And I don't ha- carry that presupposition anymore. So why not? But what happened to take that presupposition away? So you, you just said that you had it. You did have yes, it. Yes, I did. I did what have took it. it away. So it was a think decade long process of losing my faith. And I I like to say that I had a case of doubt that was terminal. So I hear I hear a lot of Christians talk about doubt as kind of the same way they talk about the flu, where it is a season of testing and it kind of boosts your immune system afterwards. So a season of doubt, a season of of feeling the absence of God that is it's like a it's like a cold. It's like a seasonal flu, and it it's important for your faith immune system. And then you come out of it, and your faith is stronger, and you have a more vibrant spiritual body as a result. That was not my experience. My experience was that I had cancer, and it was a terminal case. And no matter how many treatments I got no matter how much I tried to keep that faith alive, it just slowly died kind of against my will. And here's the important thing is doubt and faith. I think on a fundamental level, I don't think it is a choice. The book of Hebrews calls faith a gift. And I think that is right. I think it is something that is, that happens beneath the conscious layer it, I think it. I think it is deeper than rationality. At the end of the day, of course, rationality rationality plays a role. But I cannot say what was it about. What is it about me as an individual that makes me the skeptic? I can't say. I don't know. That's a mystery. What is it about me that makes me the 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 skeptic? And I don't, I don't know. And this, this process started when I was in high school Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until 2017 when I was in my late twenties when I, it finally died and it was a long, excruciating, brutal experience. And I did not want it. This is the thing. Doubt happens to doubt happened to me. A loss of faith happened to me. It was done to me. And I so did you, not you want had, it. You had no role in the decision. Because, yes, you're right. Faith is a gift. It is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so is doubt. Is doubt is also a gift. It is a thing that is given to you. It's like the shittiest well, Christmas present you can ever get. Doubt is not listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit, let me just say. Fair enough. Um, but there is an element of human choice 
We there do is. choose. Yes, we and, do. And so in that time of the dark night of the soul, so I would say that you failed the test, you know, the way the way you were laying it you know, <laughs> say, like, well, you failed. <laughs> Oops. Um, but that that failure, there does come a point of in that time of darkness, in that area of wilderness of choosing, of saying, of, of in, in that moment of doubt, choosing faith. Yeah. And I, I got I got to the point where choosing faith felt like a breach of my integrity. And that's that's Why? the thing. Why because, is that? Because I'm a I'm opposed to lying. And when you you I am I am morally opposed to lying. And so when I was in church and saying the Nicene and Apostles Creed and being like, I don't believe a single word of this. Why am I lying? Why am I saying that I believe this when I don't? I would rather be an honest pagan than a dishonest Christian. I would rather be an honest heathen than a dishonest Christian, right? And so that, to me, it, it, it didn't feel noble or upright or good to say, I'm going to push through this and continue to believe regardless. That, to me, was simply deception. And I have to adhere to my standards, to my principles of intellectual honesty. And if my intellectual honesty demands that I say, I don't know, because I don't have good reason to believe something. If I don't have good reason to believe something, then why do I believe it? Can I, can I clarify something there? Yes. Because um, I was saying in that moment of doubt, coming, you know, making that choice to believe. There's a part two to that that I need to clarify. Sure. And that is making the choice to fully surrender. Yes. To, to God. And so what I've discovered in my own life and in the lives of those uh, great men and women of faith who have profound faith, who have profound walks mm -hmm. with, with God. The Knights of Faith, as Kierkegaard calls them. <laughs> yes. That in that moment of decision, yes, there was a decision to believe, but it was wrapped up in the decision to surrender fully. Because the reason why you are in moments of doubt is because there's parts of you that do not want to surrender, that do not want to admit that there is a God who rules over the, the states of man, and that there are standards that he, he puts in, in our created world. And, and so what I believe, what is accompanying doubt is a hubris that, go, that goes along with it. And so the reason why there's this crisis is that you come to the point where you have to realize that on all levels of being, you are not God at all. God in terms of the definition of the ultimate source of truth, whether that be big T truth or little truth, God, as Jordan Peterson would define him as the highest form of good, um, that what, whatever that definition of God, that highest form of good, that we are not it whatever that is. And that point of doubt and that point of decision of faith is accompanied with that point of complete and total surrender to God. Does that make sense? It does. And so here's, here's where we get into the challenges of subjective phenomenological experience, right? So I completely believe that you have had exactly the experience that you describe and that what you said comes 
and and what you believe that you just described comes from that personal experience. I absolutely believe that. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of what I'm getting at when I when I say that mine was cancer while other people's <laughs> when I when I listen to to Christians talk about doubt it's more like a case of the flu because I I uh, believe that I did surrender and what I surrendered into was nothing what I surrendered into was emptiness now there's there's this is where we just have to trust each other and we just have to trust each other's reported experience because this is phenomenological and this is subjective and we can't get into each other's heads right and so there is one thing that i would very much like to encourage a lot of believers to to do which is to to just not tell me what i have in my heart so Mm -hmm. here's so for example christians will often tell me you know deep inside your heart that there is a god or you know deep inside your heart that there is, you know, a loving God and and so on and so forth. I know nothing of the sort. I know nothing of the sort yeah. at the deepest level. And so there, there is a point at which we just have to trust each other's subjective reported experience. And I... No one has... No one else has access to your internal experience but you um and to your internal experience with the divine but you and the divine whoever the fuck that is so it's just, that's that's between the two of you and i just have to trust that what you just told me is an accurate depiction of your interior reality and my experience with doubt was very much a continuous because i was i was I was told exactly that and not only told, but the great, the model of the great mystics who I still have great admiration for the John St. John's of the crosses the Teresa of Avila's, the Therese of Lisieux, the, the Thomas Merton's, you know, the, the great mystics who were really the lifeblood and still the, I mean, I'm, I'm still deeply informed by them. They, they're, model is one of surrender mm-hmm. and what happens when you surrender so so how do let me let me put it this way the numinous and the mysterious the inexplicability of reality the the and if that's what we want to call god then we can do that that god God as the fundamental mystery of the universe. God as the inexplicability of consciousness. That God came into the fore for me. And that, which is why I consider myself very still very much a mystic that's why that's why i meditate every morning that's why i still consider myself deeply religious okay um that came into the fore but god as a person god as god as a trinity who is literally three in one who was raised from the dead on the third day, who communicates with us, that God 
I tried as hard as I could to continue to believe in that God and surrender to that God. And it's like the it was like quicksand. The the more the the, it, the well, no, quicksand isn't a good metaphor. It was like the the deeper the more you let go, the deeper I sank. The more I surrendered, the deeper I sank into disbelief. Now that might be a failure on my part, maybe, and I know that Christians listening will assume that it is. That's okay. All I ask is that people grant that that was my experience, and that's all yes. we can do for each other. Yeah. I would just like to say thank you for being honest, and please know that you know I, I'm speaking as a sister who really, really loves you. Yes, you too. And I, I really appreciate the honesty that you have to wanting to be an honest heathen rather than a dishonest Christian, and I think that is a profound, profound statement. Uh, I, I believe that there are a lot of functional atheists out there, a lot of people who profess to be Christians and yet who act like God doesn't exist, uh -huh. functional atheism, right? And I find that more repugnant than someone like you who is just honest about where, where you are. Yes, no, uh, I agree. I agree. Yes. And, so, and, yes, and go that, on, go on. Yeah, I, that is very, very, very um, important to me. So thank you. Thank you for that. And for those Christians who are listening, I, I want to offer this challenge because it's a challenge for me too. It's like, am I living as if I truly, really do believe that there is a God in heaven who judges, who presides over the affairs of men and women? So am, am I walking the walk that I profess to talk as a Christian? And so what, what you are talking about, Stephen, should be a challenge to all people of faith who do profess faith. Perfect. Okay. Um, oh, so and, and let, me, let, me add, let me add one more thing here, which is one of my core guiding principles is a quote from Thomas Jefferson, and I know you're a Thomas Jefferson stan, um, where he says, doubt with boldness even the existence of God, for if there be one, he must more truly, he must truly more approve of the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. So it's like if there is a God, mm -hmm. okay, and yep. if yep. there is a God, and if he is good, then I have to assume that he would prefer honesty. Yep. And I, that's I would, I would agree. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, go on, go on. Yes, that that honesty is is the best the best step forward here in this particular circumstance um so before we move on to the part two of this question and by the way we're not going to be getting to the other two the um the worldview questions two and three because that's this fine. Is such a big topic which is fine but the part two of question one which is who is god right we have to ask okay so you have kind of laid out who you see god to be now let's start unpacking that that idea of Okay, how we see God, what is our relationship to whatever that definition of God is? Um, but, but before we go there, I, I want to kind of wrap this final section or this prior section up with a thought that came to my mind and something that my 11-year-old son said to me before this interview. So first the thought, and that is, you are a doubting Thomas. So we know in scripture the story of, of the disciple named Thomas who could not believe that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, right? Until one day, all the disciples are gathered in a room, and, and this is after, after the crucifixion, and uh, Jesus shows up 
in their midst. And then Thomas has to come and put his hands, his finger in, in the wounds of Christ. And then he believes. So Stephen, you are a doubting Thomas. You need to have that. Absolutely. Put your finger in the wounds of the risen Savior's hands type experience. It's a very physical, very palpable, very in your face type experience. Oh, and by the way, it's not subjective because there's a whole room of witnesses who see it happen. Exactly. Right? That's exactly and, right. And not only okay. that, not, it, I mean, it can be my mind fingers. It can be my my rationality. My my brain mm-hmm. has to be able to put to put its fingers in in the in the hand hole in the. <laughs> yes. In yes. The, 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 yeah. Whatever that is. That that wound that the nails put into Christ's hands, right? So um, I I am saying I'm saying this with the full weight of complete 100% faith, and that is you will receive that. <laughs> you will receive that doubting Thomas moment. I appreciate in that. whatever form that you need that. You know, and a in, lot of people a lot of people tell me that, and I'm just like, great, let's <laughs> let's Let go, happen. let's do it. <laughs> um, well, and let me let me actually give an example of this. Uh, when I say that I am willing to believe crazy shit, I use quantum physics as an example where quantum physics and I'm going to try to talk about this without completely distorting the science because it's very easy to to fall into kind of woo unscientific language when we talk about quantum physics. But let's take the example of quantum entanglement, where a particle, two particles can become entangled in such a way where if one spins up, then the other will spin up on the other side of the universe. Now that defies all reason. That defies Mm -hmm. Newtonian physics. That defies everything. But here's the thing. The mathematics of quantum physics and the experimentation, the experiments on quantum physics demonstrates that these crazy things about the nature of our reality have been demonstrated again and again and again and again. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I accept it. I am willing to believe crazy shit. And even more so, quantum physics, the mathematics of quantum physics. Is our our modern world runs on math that presupposes the existence of quantum physics, like um, like uh, 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 GPS. GPS works because of quantum physics. So there are extraordinary facts about our world that we do not understand. We have there is there are bigger mysteries. We have more mysteries than we have answers. I want. I am willing to acknowledge crazy shit. I just need sufficient evidence. So I always use quantum mechanics as an example of crazy yeah. shit that I'm willing to believe um, if there is sufficient evidence. Anyway, go on. Next, next okay. uh, step. Yep. Next step. Well, to transition into this next step, I have to tell you what your nephew said before the interview. So I was, oh yes. He's 11, right? So this is kind of funny. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be doing a podcast interview with your uncle Stephen. And, and you know, you know, he's a, he's a Satanist, right? And so you told um, your son that? Oh, yeah, they know this. Okay, yeah, good. They I'm totally so glad. Know everything. They, they know this about you. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> why, why would I hide this from my children who their uncle I'd is? Say to, I just assume that Satanism, that no child knows about Satanism until they turn 21. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm a classical home educator. 
My children know a lot. You believe in <laughs> okay? not lying to your children. I appreciate that. That's very good. Yes. Now, child age appropriate stuff. But anyway, what Liam said is he said, well, let's see. Satan is Satanism is kind of opposite of Christianity, right? And then then he, like in the eleven year old year old reasoning, he said, "So therefore, Stephen must worship dog instead of God." I fucking love that. <laughs> Isn't that funny? And he kind of <laughs> chuckled to himself and went on along his way. So good, okay, good. I'm glad go. that that is the extent of his engagement. I love that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Okay, on to part two of question one, and that is. What is the relationship? So now we need to talk about the, okay, so we, we've stated the belief. What is the implication of that belief? What, but I guess I, I kind of laid out what, what my definition of God is. I, I'm assuming everybody kind of already knows since mm-hmm. you've said that I am a Christian. So let me just briefly state, I believe that there is a divine person who is very concerned about the world and very concerned about human beings who is real um who stands beyond creation but his is is the creator and who is very personal and who uh can can interact with people and uh who has dealt with the greatest human issue and that is our tendency to be very messed up and that god has provided a way to deal with our our human fallibilities um, we call that sin in Christianese, but I don't like using Christianese. Uh, there's a lot of baggage with that word sin. So I'm just going to say human brokenness and fallibility. God has figured out a way to fix that problem. Okay, so um, that, that was the compare and contrast there of, of question number one of who is God. Okay, so now uh, let me restate the second part, and that is that that life system question of um, what is our relationship or your relationship to that God, how you have defined it? Okay. What are the implications of your belief? What does that mean? Now, part two, the quick question two deals with who is man and what is our relationship to man. And, and what's interesting is that our view and understanding of our relationship with God directly impacts our view and understanding and relationship with our, with, with, with fellow man with each other in in community. And so this question of who is God or what do we worship? That's another way of asking that question. What do we worship? What do we see in our individual lives as the highest form of truth, the highest good? Um, What do we worship? Because ultimately you do worship God. That's why God is God, whatever form he takes in your life. Uh, I personally believe that there are a lot of people who think they're worshiping the God of heavens, right? The, the God of creation, but rather all they're really worshiping is themselves. They are their own God. Um, that is the problem with postmodernism. They are their own gods. So there, there's the part two. What sure. do you think about that? What, what are the implications of your belief? Well, so I think that I have to stake out a divergent intuition here. Because I think that how do I how do I want to how do I want to say this? Of course, there there is a you're right in that what we believe about the nature of reality affects how we interact with it and each other and ourselves. That's that's absolutely true. I think that there is a fallacy that I and I like to call it the first cause fallacy, which is if there is no if we can't clearly identify a core 
purpose or meaning in this universe, then that means that we, us small, humble creatures also don't have meaning, that we don't have purpose. And so we, we have, I think, this natural desire to draw a straight line of our purpose, our fulfillment, our meaning back to the origins of the universe and say, if, if we don't understand the purpose and meaning there, then we don't have meaning and purpose. As if what we believe about the universe fundamentally changes it. As if, but the the universe is what it is, regardless of what we believe about it. So, and we still experience meaning and purpose and love despite whatever that purpose was. So I, I want to apply some pressure to the I to this. And I don't know if this is actually what you're saying, but it kind of rhymes with what you're saying. So I, I, th- I want to address it, which is I, I'm not sure that in order to live a good life, we have to answer the deepest questions about our origins. I think that we can, and that includes God, right? The fact is the universe is what it is regardless of what we think about it, and our challenge as humans is to live a good life despite that fact. And I don't know why humanity is here. I don't know uh, what happens after we die. I don't know where the universe came from or why it exists. I don't have answers to any of that. What I do know is that suffering and well-being matter because base reality for us is that we are conscious creatures. We are beings capable of suffering and fulfillment and torment and joy. And for whatever reason, that matters. And we can maximize that flourishing or we can diminish that flourishing. And so for for me I don't start I don't start in in terms of my praxis in terms of how I live my life. I don't start with why is humanity here? How did God create us? Where did we come from? Because we will I don't know if we will ever have answers to that. Um, and whatever did happen there is true regardless of what we believe about it. I start with the fact of consciousness. I, because the only reason this universe matters to us at all is because we have a subjective experience that is able to apprehend it. The only reason joy and misery matter to us is because we are conscious. So I start there. I start with the fact of consciousness. And then it is my job as a human being to maximize that flourishing for other human beings. To, to, um, and I think that there is... I, I don't think that morality is subjective. Um, and I think that... Part of that morality, part part of my morality is to enhance the flourishing and well-being of other human beings. Now, 
to me, that is a separate question from why are we here? I, so I, I kind of, on the one hand, it is true that what we believe about the universe de- greatly determines how we behave. At the same time, I, I think that there is a fallacy here where if where we have to know what ha- we have to know how the universe started in order to behave correctly. No, I think we can I think that we can act ethically even if we don't know or the the imperative to act ethically is still there regardless of whether we know where the universe came from or not. Okay. So those are all really good answers to the question of does it matter if we know where the universe came from? Yes. Um, so let, let me rephrase my original question in maybe a different way. So the original, I guess, well, the original question is, what? How, how does our relationship with what we see of as God impacts how we act? So let me kind of rephrase that in a way that might clarify some things. And that is, let's let's say, let's have a working definition of God as as this. God is that thing that you worship because you see it as the highest standard of good, justice, truth, et cetera, et cetera, reality. Okay. But it is worshiped by you or you being, you know, you general, generic you, because you see it as that highest standard. Okay. And so some people might say, well, yeah, that's, that's the Christian God, or that's the, um, Muslim God or the Jewish God or the pagan gods, you know, whatever we as an individual subjective human being here sees as the highest standard of good justice, truth, and therefore we worship it because we are all worshiping something. Okay. What do I mean by worship? Let me define that is what we put our attention on and our heart's adoration on like what, what we just, Oh, wow. That's just amazing. Okay. Everybody worships something. Okay. And what we worship is our God and not does that doesn't necessarily have to be capital G God. It can be lower G God. Okay. And so our relationship to that God determines how we, how we interact with the world around us. Does that yes. make sense? Yes, so this it is does. a very present thing, not so, something about wondering about the origin okay, of the universe. So, this is like right here now. So God, okay. So God being whatever is the highest good or foundational principle or whatever the case may be. Okay. So does that rephrase it a little bit? Yes, does that help? Yes, it does. The question? So, okay. So what are, so for me, I think a good way of addressing that is what are, what are my highest ideals? I would say it is the flourishing of conscious creatures that really matters to me. And therefore I, I want to enhance the flourishing of conscious creatures. What does flourishing mean? What does that look like? And um, what's a conscious creature? You yeah. So, so conscious creature. So we can start with humans. Um, but I, I think that we can also say that other mammals are conscious. I can, I think we can say that other cre- some other creatures are conscious. Is act the, the task of, of knowing what is and is not conscious is actually a fascinating and incredibly challenging mm-hmm. philosophical problem. But the answer that I like for what is consciousness is it is like something to be you. There is an intr- you, there is a qualia. There is a phenomenological 
sense or experience uh, that it is like something to be you. It is like something to be me. It is like something to be a bat. It is like something to be a cat, right? Mm-hmm. So we can imagine. So whenever we ask the question, I wonder what it's like to be my dog. Okay, that's a that is an acknowledgement of consciousness. It is like something to be that that entity. So that's what consciousness is. It is like something to be that thing. And then hmm, what? And then what is flourishing? That will depend on. That will depend on the creature. So, maximum. So I can start with humans. What is flourishing for humans? Flourishing for humans is the pursuit of knowledge that uh, brings us joy because we're human beings. We are designed, we are evolved to explore. So it is the freedom to explore. It is uh, not doing bodily harm to each other. It is not being in, in psychic hell. Go to Skid Row and those are people in hell. Mm-hmm. So we know suffering when we see it, and it is living free of. It is it is living free of that psychic torment. It is living in the best things that give our life fulfillment. Love the we are social creatures living in community, living towards a common goal, having having values that motivate our lives that that push us towards uh the the common good um mm-hmm. all all that stuff i mean we can and it and it sounds vague and it sounds but it i think we know it, i think it's like pornography i think we know it when we see it and <laughs> and the we know what hell looks like and we know what goodness looks we know we know what it is because we're human beings we know what it means for us to flourish and it's it's interesting you say that um this idea of we know what hell looks like but just because some of us know what it looks like doesn't mean we run away from it and that's right um, (laughs) that's very true your your example of um pornography is really interesting because uh, I, i heard an interesting interview by jordan peterson of course he's one of my heroes Sorry if that offends people, but he's awesome. Um, <laughs> uh, asking the question of how did these child sex traffickers who are doing these horrendous things to children, how did they get to where they are psychologically? And the answer is, well, porn started that. But it was a small, a series of small steps and decisions where they justified and rationalized, well, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay. It was, it was like the slow boiling of a lobster, right? Um, haha, lobster and Jordan Peterson, fun co- connection there. Anyway, sidebar. Um, <laughs> um, but here's the thing is they knew what they were looking at was wrong and yet rationalized, I'm going to do this anyway. It's just this little thing. Well, that little thing led to a little thing that led to a little thing that led to these individuals doing the unthinkable Right. And and so um, anyway, that's just an interesting comment that we know what hell and suffering looks like. But that doesn't guarantee that we're actually going to be good (laughs) and and react. That's right. And Um, I don't. So 
I want I I we can we can bracket the what you just said about pornography leading to child sex trafficking for a later conversation because I I don't accept that premise. That... It's not the only thing. It was just the example okay. used. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not saying that's like this. That's the one thing. <laughs> sure. No, sure, it's sure. not. There's a lot of social factors. There's a lot of economic sure. factors. Yes, definitely. Uh, it's, it's a very complex thing. So th and... that, I'm sorry, that was an oversimplification, but it was it it, it but it does play a role. And it, it is one of the tools used. One of the th so I I think that that actually speaks to the fact that human beings have the moral imperative because we we have the ability to look to conceptualize a future where we say if we keep acting like this if i keep if i keep eating five donuts a day if i keep smoking a pack of cigarettes a day if i keep doing then i will end up in hell hell being a metaphorical term yeah. for yeah. enormous you. suffering we have that ability and with that ability comes responsibility. Yes. Right? And the fact that some people don't do that doesn't rid us of, of the fact that that is the case. So I, that, that's really interesting. Uh, you said that human beings have this sense of moral imperative. That leads us to a place of responsibility. That is what distinguishes and separates human beings from all the other creatures like cats and dogs and trees and flowers. That's right. Okay. Is that we have this sense of this moral imperative. And my, my question is, where does that come from? Where in the world? Why do we human beings of all the things that exist in this world? Well, that's kind of a there might be other things that we don't know about yet. <laughs> I'm just saying, um, why do we have that moral imperative? Where in the world does it come from? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so Stephen, for me, that is one of the huge proofs of God that, that we don't know. A, so no, no, no. That that we have it. That we have this moral imperative. That we have this sense of consciousness. That we have this sense of like, oh, responsibility and duty, and we we've, we've got to take care of things, and we've got to be responsible, and that we have foresight to see five years down the road, ten years down the road. That we have the ability to make decisions, and that is because those things reflect the character of a God who created us. And that is, it's very distinct. So to me, that's one of those slap in the face evidences for mm. me personally. Um, just sharing it. Hold that thought one quick. What do you need? Not right now. Your, your nephew wants to ask you a question. Translate it through me. You can edit this out. What is the question? Why are you gay? <laughs> he wants to ask why you're gay. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here! <laughs> I am happy to answer that question. No, no it's we, it's from like this meme. I don't oh, know if why are you gay? Meme. Well, the kids have been like passing that around. Why the why are you gay? Well, I am happy to answer the question. Why am I gay? Um, I'll have Evan send you that that link because it is funny and you might be highly offended at it. But he oh, I, I my ability to be offended has been seared out of my psyche. So um, oh, good. Anyway, back back to our very serious conversation uh, about consciousness and <laughs> okay so so for you the question is okay so for you the fact that we have a moral framework yep and the capacity for morality is evidence of god to me it is only evidence for that if we presuppose the existence of god for what do you mean by presuppose the existence of god flesh that out for me so 
we so God is a prior. We it it, it is exactly it is it it is exactly what it sounds like. It is it is a priori. It is an assum it is the assumption that we carry into the equation. Um, it is the sum that is the assumption that we carry, and we we all have to have priors. We we all have to have some priors in order to function, right? And and so I'm not opposed to priors mm -hmm. in principle. I have priors, but yeah. God as a prior means that it will make intuitive sense that God is the prior if he is already the prior, whereas to me, uh, God is not a prior, um, and therefore God needs to be established. And I am maybe more willing than other atheists to say that— I, I may be more willing than other atheists to entertain almost Platonist views of what is morality or, yeah. or what is— I, I don't think that— morality comes from outside of ourselves but i'm open to entertaining that and the reason i'm open to entertaining it is because i i don't know where morality comes from i my suspicion is that it is evolved apes have morality to a Ape, degree yes apes apes engage yes. in moral behavior so do elephants so so on and so forth however and so Whatever morality is, it is evolved. Now, why? I don't know. That's an incredibly complex question. What I, but that to me is like saying, why did I evolve this hand? I don't know. I have it. It's my hand. It is the body. This is the body that I have. In the same way, morality is what I have. It is me. This body is mine. Now, where did this body come from? I don't need to know where that body came from. I don't need to know how this body evolved to know that it is mine. And the same is true of morality. So that is not to say that morality is arbitrary. No more than the fact that I have five, you know, four fingers and a thumb is arbitrary. It is mine. And it is how it is. It is the brain that I, I have been given a moral brain by nature. And mm -hmm. that that is true regardless of where it came from. OK, so explain to me a Christian. Yes. Who believes. Well, I don't believe I don't just believe I know there's a deep knowing this is OK. There, there, there's a difference between belief and knowing. Correct. Um, another. Con yep. Who knows clearly that law moral law comes from the lawgiver who is god and so in my mind when i picture the removal of god so the source of morality from out of the picture then there is no anchor for what we call morality and then in my mind i think well, then it's up to each individual to decide what is moral, ethical, just, good, right, true, right? And then I'm thinking, wow, human beings are really messed up and we make a lot of bad decisions and I don't want to put my, I, 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 I don't want to rest my understanding of what is good, just, true, and moral in the hands of a human being who is fallible. Because when I look at history and I see historically when that has happened, when when whole societies have trusted their own moral reasoning 
apart from the existence of the divine lawgiver, you get things like the French Revolution and uh, Nazi Germany and the death camps and the gulags in Stalinist Russia and the communist re uh, revolution in, in China. Because those were, according to those who were in charge, the natural rational thinkings of, well, this goes, might lead to right, right? That, that idea of when you unhinge the source of, 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 of morality from a lawgiver, who is then the authority? Human beings. And then what human beings get to decide what's right and true and just? Well, the ones in charge, the ones who have power, right? And we know that power corrupts because then you don't have this cushion of this, this sense of a God who's overseeing the affairs of men anymore. Like, oh, there's no, there's no one to be accountable to. We're only accountable to ourselves. Well, ourselves are pretty messed up, effed up. I would cuss, but I don't because I'm a Christian, right? Okay. <laughs> um, but you, you see, that's the reasoning that's going on in my mind. And so I see it as an incredibly dangerous thing to remove morality out from under this umbrella of a lawgiver, of a source. And yes, that's an a priori assumption right there that, that God exists. Uh, but you know what? I, I take the stance that macro evolution, that's a presupposition as well. And, and so we, we base all of, we base a lot of things on a priori suppositions. So yeah, that's, that's my, my take on the whole issue. Cause I, I see great cultural and societal implications to this, this idea of what is, what is man's relationship to, to God? It, it's, it's incredibly impactful. Um, and we can go into that, but I am also noticing the time. <laughs> sure. Um, well, can I, can I respond to that really quickly? Yes. Yes, please. Yes. Um, please. So I'm not sure that the history of theism is actually a good testimony to the morality. Yeah. I'm, of, I'm not saying that that uh, the, the Judeo-Christian history is flawless and not sure. covered in blood either. Uh, however, I would like to say um, I think it'd be a lot worse when we remove God. So it is a lot worse historically. Well, I would, I would. So we can we can explore that that avenue in a later podcast because that's fascinating. I think I disagree with that, but we don't have time to get into why. But what I will say is, let's take a genuinely horrific thing. Uh, let's say female genital mutilation. Okay. Yes, which is Muslim. Yes, correct. Why? Yes. Why so not is... Judeo-Christian? Let's just be so, very clear about that. So why is so if you were to articulate to someone without using the words God mm -hmm. or spiritual or any theological language, why is that wrong? Why do you have this visceral belief that that is wrong? Mm, that's a good question, because it's it's violating the individual right of of that individual to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So I, I can I can answer that question as an American. OK, there you go. <laughs> That's yeah. it. That way, is it. As an American, the roots of the Declaration and Constitution, and this is my wheelhouse, by the way, is rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic and culture. So those founding documents didn't just morph out of nowhere. They have 2000 years of history that led to their creation and they are rooted in that Judeo-Christian ethic. Um, and so so I answer that question by saying it violates the life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness of that individual. And, um, and why and, 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 why does that why does that matter? 
Why does it matter that it violates? Why, why do why do we care that it violates their pursuit of happiness without yes. using the words God, without using okay. any spiritual language? Because um, without without using any spiritual language, so now you're asking me to divorce my deep held beliefs and knowing from God. Why does it violate? Wait, say say, say so that again. Why say, say do why thing. do we why do we care? that it violates a woman's pursuit of happiness. And I would say, so I'm, I'm going to give you the Christian answer and then I'm going to give you why I can't give you an answer without God. Okay. In, in, okay. Do it. And that is as human beings, the Judeo Christian belief is that we are all, we all stand before God as equals, all each accountable to him. Okay. That's a, that's a foundational principle. Okay, that is very different from all the other faiths. Um, okay, so because we all stand as equals before God, we are all we all stand as equals with each other. Okay, that apart from our natural talents and abilities, uh, we cannot lord or master over others because God is a master of all of us. Does, does that make sense? Yes. So here in that very foundational principle is the basic principle of democracy. Okay. Guess what? The idea of, of, of equal law and justice is an Old Testament concept. Okay. That's a whole other conversation for an, another time. Okay. So because I stand as an equal before God, I have no right to lord it over another person, to force someone to do something, to push them into subservience. Okay. What is being done to those women is pushing them into a subservience. Okay. That violates the image of God within them that that messes up and, and, and it's a total violation of who they are before God. OK, so because I recognize that everybody else also stands before God as equals. OK, they are responsible for their own actions, their own their, their own lives. Um, it means that I cannot lord it over them, that I can't make them or, or, or push them into servants. Um, and. So does that make sense? It does. It does. And my so my follow up question and I we don't have much more time, so I won't pursue this. No, we get to the good stuff at the end. (laughs) But the but the follow up question is, so you would say so. So you say that we are equals before God. Well, why does that matter to us? Yeah, because the reason my answer is because we're conscious. Okay, but what in the world does that have to do with being equal? Because if, see, in my mind, in my mind, I'm thinking, if there is no God, okay, then we are not equal, because we are all different. Some are more powerful, some are smarter, some are more wealthy. And so what happens is, but we're all conscious, but that doesn't seem to stop this idea of, well, I have more money, and so I'm gonna make you do what I want you to do. I'm more powerful, and so I'm going to enslave you. It is that is not we we don't sit back and say, well, we're all conscious, so therefore we shouldn't enslave each other. That's that that doesn't mean anything to me. But when we have this idea of there's a God that we are all accountable to, and one day we're going to have to look him in the eye and and kind of say, hey, here here's how I live my life. Um, that is a motivator to look at each other and say, I will not violate mm. your rights. That's that's interesting because that is an external locus of control versus an internal locus of control. 
And, yes. And I yeah. find external locuses of control kind of inherently unstable. <laughs> and so I always Unless get... Unless it's God. Well, God's I, the only stable thing. I get I get a bit nervous whenever anyone, <laughs> whenever anyone is like, my belief in God is the one keeping me from, you know, mutilating someone else's genitals or committing murder or raping okay. or pillaging. So this is why it's important why we define which God. Correct. Because the reason why they're mutilating genitals is because of a of, of a faith in a God. Well, guess what? There can be the bad there can be bad gods. Right. So so but so what it I really but, matters. My my point, yes, I agreed, but also my my point being I get really worried about a person and their mm -hmm. ethics when they say I am only doing this. I I do not do bad things because I will be judged at the end of time. That is that to me is not moral. You know what's funny is I have the exact opposite response. That, that to me you, is you say, deeply immoral. Or not deeply immoral, it is it is a it makes me deeply question the integrity of that person because so you're, if, you're, you're, uh, you're questioning my integrity, <laughs> and, but no, here's the you, thing. Brother. No, here's the thing. <laughs> I don't actually think that people believe that. And I, okay. and the reason, the reason is because I think that you would still be an ethical person without God. If you did not believe in God, I think that you would still. And so I, I don't believe Maybe there are a few people, I believe, when they say this, that if they didn't have God, then they would rape and pillage. But by and large, I, I, I'm suspicious of that claim because mm -hmm. I think that morality is closer to home. I think morality is more deeply ingrained in us than that. Mm -hmm. We are moral creatures, and it, it's... And whether God exists or not, we still have a moral impulse. And the the and this is significant because even people, you know, even the Nazis were acting out of what they believed was a moral impulse. So the moral yes. impulse is still yeah. there. The yeah. moral impulse is still there. So anyway, we're <laughs> we're reaching. Let, let, let me let me close because I'm I'm going to do a quick rebuttal, and that is I think it's incredibly dangerous to have an internal locus of uh, of what is moral, of what is true and what is just, because uh, I've read history and I've traveled the world and I've seen how messed up human beings can be. And I I don't trust my own internal locus. Does that make sense? It because does. I know how messed up I can be. And so when I'm looking at my neighbor, I'm like, you're just as messed up as I am. And so that is why we have to look to the real God, not the fake God, not the ones we make up, not the ones we think exist, but don't. The real God, the creator God, the one who made the laws in the first place. Okay. Um, and so that it's kind of a, a different way of, of seeing the yes, same issue. Very, very right? divergent intuitions, yeah, which yeah. is interesting. Um, but we do agree that uh, there there is a moral impetus in, in humanity and the and, question of where does it come from? And more than that, I, I believe that there is a moral that there are right and wrong answers to the question yes. of what is and is not moral. And there, that, there are standards of so I'm not a cultural relativist, right? Yeah. I'm not yeah. a, I'm, I'm not by any means a, a moral relativist. I think that there are right and wrong answers to what is ethical. 
and mm-hmm. the great challenge of humanity, you know, facing humanity is we have to figure it out. And that and I think that honestly, this is where I I have a lot in common with theists, because like theists, I believe that there is a fact of the matter. I, I believe that there is a moral fact of the matter and that there is a outside my own experience, a fact of the matter of the nature of reality. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. We just agree. We just disagree on the source of where that comes from. Yes, absolutely. So and, and that is our definition of God. <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, the I, I think that the important underlying theme here is as long as we're kind of speaking the same language, we can have enough overlap to grapple towards, to, to reason together. So as mm-hmm. long as we have the common ground enough to say there is a fact of the matter, well, then we can fight over what the fact of the matter is. Yes. Yeah. And that's profound. That is a profound thing to recognize. Yes, there is a fact of the matter. And to, I guess to close out my, my thoughts on this, issue and that is what i see is the great threat to our society today is that there is not agreement on that there is a fact of the matter okay and so i am super excited as a christian who believes that morality comes from god to have conversations with and to partner with a satanist theistic person theistic who are you wait what are you how how did you describe i'm a non (laughs) i describe myself as a non-theist which i like to say means i am an atheist but i'm not mad about it Okay, there we go. One of those things. I am excited and happy to partner and have conversations with someone like you because we agree on that fundamental presupposition. And that is that there is a fact of the matter. And that itself is a presupposition, right? Yes. Um, And what our our great cultural crisis right now is, is that there is not agreement on that. Uh, And that is very divisive. And that's very, uh, it's causing a huge rift in our culture. And so if we had time, what would be a very interesting thing to talk about would be how to move forward in a culture that does not agree on these things and have positive conversations and actually fix our culture because it's going to fall apart. But I know we're out of time. Dang it. This always happens. We have such good conversations. <laughs> we and do. We only like oh, scratch the surface. No, we can. We can definitely do this again. And dear listeners, I can't wait to hear back from you. Please share your thoughts on Substack in the Discord server. Oh, also, you are welcome to join Everyone listening is welcome to join the Discord server. There will be a link in the show notes. Uh, That is where a great deal of the discussion about my work happens. So if you listen to this episode and are just brimming with thoughts that you need to share with someone, then please do that in the Discord server or in the comment section on the Substack post. There will also be a link in the show notes. All right. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for another session. We will do this again. Um, That is it for this show. The music is by Eleven D7. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons and Substack subscribers. And as always, stay curious, and thanks for listening.